Section 22 of the Underground Railroad, Part 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Underground Railroad, Part 4, by William Still. Section 22. Crossing the Bay in a Bateau. Sharp Contest with Pursuers on Water. Fugitives Victorious. Thomas Sipple and his wife, Marianne. Henry Burkett and Elizabeth, his wife. John Purnell and Hale Burton. This party were slaves living near Kunkeltown in Worcester County, Maryland, and had become restive in their fetters. Although they did not know a letter of the alphabet, they were fully persuaded that they were entitled to their freedom. In considering what way would be safest for them to adopt, they concluded that the water would be less dangerous than any other route. As the matter of freedom had been in their minds for a long time, they had frequently counted the cost, and had been laying by trifling sums of money which had fallen perchance into their hands among them all they had about thirty dollars as they could not go by water without a boat one of their number purchased an old bateau for the small sum of six dollars the delaware bay lay between them and the jersey shore which they desired to reach they did not calculate however that before leaving the delaware shore they would have to contend with the enemy that in crossing they would lose sight of the land they well understood they managed to find out the direction of the shore, and about the length of time that it might take them to reach it. Undaunted by the perils before them, the party repaired to the bay, and at ten o'clock p.m. embarked direct for the other shore. Near Kate's Hammock, on the Delaware shore, they were attacked by five white men in a small boat. One of them seized the chain of the fugitive's boat and peremptorily claimed it this is not your boat we bought this boat and paid for it spake one of the brave fugitives i am an officer and must have it said the white man holding on to the chain being armed the white men threatened to shoot manfully did the black men stand up for their rights and declared that they did not mean to give up their boat alive the parties speedily came to blows one of the white men dealt a heavy blow with his oar upon the head of one of the black men, which knocked him down and broke the oar at the same time. The blow was immediately returned by Thomas Sipple, and one of the white men was laid flat on the bottom of the boat. The white men were instantly seized with a panic and retreated. After getting some yards off, they snapped their guns at the fugitives several times, and one load of small shot was fired into them. John received two shot in the forehead, but was not dangerously hurt. George received some in the arms. Hale Burton got one about his temple, and Thomas got a few in one of his arms. But the shot being light, none of the fugitives were seriously damaged. Some of the shot will remain in them as long as life lasts. The conflict lasted for several minutes, but the victorious bondmen were only made all the more courageous by seeing the foe retreat. They rowed with a greater will than ever, and landed on a small island. Where they were, or what to do, they could not tell. One whole night they passed in gloom on this sad spot, 
their hearts were greatly cast down the next morning they set out on foot to see what they could see the young women were very sick and the men were tried to the last extremity however after walking about one mile they came across the captain of an oyster boat he gave them the desired information and even offered to bring them to the city if they would pay him for his services they had about twenty-five dollars in all this they willingly gave him and he brought them according to agreement when they found the captain they were not far from cape may lighthouse taking into account the fact that it was night when they started that their little boat was weak combined with their lack of knowledge in relation to the imminent danger surrounding them any intelligent man would have been justified in predicting for them a watery grave long before the bay was half crossed but they crossed safely they greatly needed food clothing rest and money which they freely received and were afterwards forwarded to john w jones underground railroad agent at elmira the subjoined letter giving an account of their arrival was duly received elmira june sixth eighteen sixty friend william still all six came safe to this place the two men came last night about twelve o'clock the man and woman stopped at the depot and went east on the next train about eighteen miles and did not get back till tonight so that the two men went this morning and the four went this evening oh old master don't cry for me for i am going to canada where colored men are free p s what is the news in the city will you tell me how many you have sent over to canada i would like to know they all send their love to you i have nothing new to tell you we are all in good health i see there is a law passed in maryland not to set any slaves free they had better get the consent of the underground railroad before they passed such a thing good night from your friend john w jones arrival from dorchester county eighteen sixty harriet tubman's last trip to maryland stephen ennetts and wife maria with three children whose names were as follows harriet aged six years amanda four years and a babe in the arms of its mother three months old the following letter from thomas garrett throws light upon this arrival wilmington twelfth month first eighteen sixty respected friend william still i write to let thee know that harriet tubman is again in these parts she arrived last evening from one of her trips of mercy to god's poor bringing two men with her as far as newcastle i agreed to pay a man last evening to pilot them on their way to chester county the wife of one of the men with two or three children was left some thirty miles below and i gave harriet ten dollars to hire a man with carriage to take them to chester county she said a man had offered for that sum to bring them on i shall be very uneasy about them till i hear they are safe there is now much more risk on the road till they arrive here than there has been for several months past as we find that some poor worthless wretches are constantly on the lookout on the two roads that they cannot well avoid more especially with carriage yet as it is harriet who seems to have had a special angel to guard her on her journey of mercy i have hope thy friend thomas garrett n b 
We hope all will be in Chester County tomorrow. These slaves from Maryland were the last that Harriet Tubman piloted out of the prison house of bondage, and these came through great tribulation. Stephen, the husband, had been a slave of John Cager, who would not allow him to live with his wife, if there was such a thing as a slave's owning a wife. She lived eight miles distant, hired her time, maintained herself, and took care of her children, until they became of service to their owner, and paid ten dollars a year for her hire. She was owned by Alger Percy. Both mother and father desired to deliver their children from his grasp. They had too much intelligence to bear the heavy burdens thus imposed without feeling the pressure a grievous one. Harriet Tubman, being well acquainted in their neighborhood, and knowing of their situation, and having confidence that they would prove true, as passengers on the Underground Railroad, engaged to pilot them within reach of Wilmington, at least to Thomas Garrett's. Thus the father and mother, with their children, and a young man named John, found aid and comfort on the way, with Harriet for their Moses. A poor woman, escaping from Baltimore in a delicate state, happened to meet Harriet's party at the station, and was forwarded on with them. They were cheered with clothing, food, and material aid, and sped on to Canada. Notes taken at the time were very brief. It was evidently deemed prudent in those days not to keep as full reports as had been the wont of the secretary prior to 1859. The capture of John Brown's papers and letters, with names and plans in full, admonished us that such papers and correspondence as had been preserved concerning the Underground Railroad might perchance be captured by a pro-slavery mob. For a year or more after the Harper's Ferry battle, as many will remember, the mob spirit of the times was very violent in all the principal northern cities, as well as southern, to save the Union. Even in Boston, abolition meetings were fiercely assailed by the mob. During this period, the writer omitted some of the most important particulars in the escapes and narratives of fugitives. Books and papers were sent away for a long time, and during this time the records were kept simply on loose slips of paper. Arrival from Maryland, 1860. Jerry Mills and wife Diana, son Cornelius, and two daughters, Margaret and Susan. The father of this family was sixty-five years of age, and his working days were apparently well-nigh completed. The mother was fifty-seven years of age, son twenty-seven, daughters seventeen and fifteen years of age. The old man was smart for his years, but bore evidence that much hard labor had been wrung out of him by slavery. Diana said that she had been the mother of twelve children. Five had escaped to Canada three were in their graves, and three accompanied her. One was left in Maryland. They had seen hard times, according to the testimony of the old man and his companion, especially under David Snively, who, however, had been removed by the Lord a number of years prior to their escape. But the change proved no advantage to them, as they found slavery no better under their mistress, the widow, than under their master. Mistress Snively was said to be close and stingy, and always unfriendly to the slave. She never thought you were doing enough. 
for her hardness of heart they were sure she would repent some time but not while she could hold slaves the belief was pretty generally entertained with the slaves that the slaveholder would have to answer for his evil doings in another world end of section twenty two